From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, political commentator Joe Tuman returns to talk about President Donald Trump's recent U.N. speech. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. No one has shown more contempt for other nations and for the well-being of their own people than the depraved regime in North Korea. It is responsible for the starvation deaths of millions of North Koreans and for the imprisonment, torture, killing, and oppression of countless more. We were all witness to the regime's deadly abuse when an innocent American college student, Otto Warmbier, was returned to America only to die a few days later. We saw it in the assassination of the dictator's brother using banned nerve agents in an international airport. We know it kidnapped a sweet, 13-year-old Japanese girl from a beach in her own country to enslave her as a language tutor for North Korea's spies. If this is not twisted enough, now North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles threatens the entire world with unthinkable loss of human life. It is an outrage that some nations would not only trade with such a regime, but would arm, supply, and financially support a country that imperils the world with nuclear conflict. No nation on Earth has an interest in seeing this band of criminals arm itself with nuclear weapons and missiles. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able. But hopefully, this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. That's what the United Nations is for. Let's see how they do. That was President Donald Trump from his address at the United Nations. The president offered, if nothing else, what can be defined as memorable remarks. Advocating an America First vision, the president painted the possible dire outcomes in North Korea as well as other potentially game-changing policies globally. 
Joining me to discuss the president's remarks, we welcome back political commentator Joe Tooman. Joe Tooman, welcome back to the public morality. Byron, always good to talk with you. Now, it has been a while since we had you in the spring, and so I guess not that much has happened since we last talked, but we'll see if we can make do. Um, that, that is the understatement <laughs> of the year. <laughs> well, we'll get into some of the details, but let's begin by you offering some of your overall assessments of President Trump's speech to the U.N. today. Well, I, I think that uh, uh, the, the statements about North Korea, which we can go into in more detail, um, were to be expected. He's he used this kind of rhetoric before. Uh, it, you know, the, this idea that uh, we're going to defend our country, and if, you, you know, if we go to the military option or if I have to defend the country, it will result in the total destruction of North, North Korea, and that's a quote, total destruction, is, is frankly the kind of alarmist uh, rhetoric that, that only increases or escalates tension between the countries instead of de-escalating it. Um, he may have felt that uh, this is his opportunity to look tough in front of people, but um, while it's good to be clear about what you mean, and we'll give him credit for that, you, you, if you're going to be diplomatic, you want to do this in a way that de-escalates tension, because uh, I hope the last thing that he wants is to engage in war, because that kind of war may also come at a cost of uh, many South Korean lives and American soldiers' lives in South Korea and in Guam. And may also cost lives in Japan. I mean, those are our allies, after all. And so, uh, there's nothing about a war that would be uh, not messy. It would always be very messy with with un or intended and unintended consequences for us down the road. And that part was regrettable. The other parts of his speech that dealt with Iran, I think, uh, are troublesome. Um, uh, it does look like he's going to scrap the, the nuclear deal now, and and that's I think uh, unfortunate because. Uh, this last round of inspections uh, demonstrated that no evidence had turned up uh, that uh, Iran was uh, secretly engaging in testing again or development of their program. Uh, in other words, that they're abiding by the agreement, uh, which all the other countries, including China and Russia, that were parties to this, have said is a desirable outcome. And this, again, seems like more posturing on Trump's part, which he's done not just with this deal, but also with other peace accords or with trade agreements or whatever, you know, he, he makes these big statements, outrageous statements, I'm going to tear this up and negotiate something better. But if you're Iran, I don't think you're going to renegotiate with the United States if they tear this up. You're going to go back to making nuclear weapons. And um, this isn't the way, again, it's escalating tensions, it's not de-escalating. And, you know, the, the last thing I would say, Byron, just I'm summarizing the speech today, you know, much of this was sort of, again, putting in the face, if you will, of all the other countries, this America first agenda, which has helped Trump build a base of voters, which is fine. Um, but it comes at the cost of global issues like climate change, uh, which absolutely uh, the vast majority, if not all countries in the United Nations agree is real, but the science is in the words of the, the head of the United Nations, unassailable. And uh, that the United States is one of the two largest uh, contributors to the problems of climate change, us being one and China being the other. Um, you know, if we're not leading the way on this, as President Obama had tried to help us do, um, then why would any other country want to do it? And, and 
I think there's reasonable evidence to suggest that the, the massive hurricane damage that we had is, is not unrelated. It's clearly related to climate change. When you look at the, the ice caps melting, you know that that's not just sort of a normal occurrence. Um, these things are real. And when the president says America first and wants to continue to engage in technologies, you know, which promote the use of fossil fuels, he's not going along with this. And, and so I think all of the United Nations got a healthy dose of that. Our European allies have already seen that when we talk about terrorism overseas. And it's, it's, it's going to be difficult for the United States going forward unless he adopts uh, a, a more globalist attitude about this. Think, I'm, I'm going to go back because we're probably going to touch on every single one of those things you just mentioned. You just you just did a great job, Joe, of not only summarizing the speech but also summarizing the questions I wanted to ask you. So, so <laughs> but you know, one of the things I, I thought back to um, two speeches. Uh, uh, the first one, uh, as you as you recall, um, when Nikita Khrushchev was slamming his shoe. Um, we will bury you. We will bury you. We're making we're making rep- missiles like sausages. We will we will bury yeah. you, and yeah. and then a couple years later, you have uh, President Kennedy and uh, I think sixty one sort of out- outlining a proposal for disarmament, and right. and so I was struck by that we have an American president who is maybe not as quite as bombastic as Khrushchev, but whose language was closer to that of the Soviet premier than in the legacy of our U.S. presidents. Well, I... Uh, we have a current president who, who uh, is consciously and perhaps intentionally not eloquent in the ways that, uh, that Kennedy was. Uh, we have a president who is, uh, I don't intend this as a criticism so much as just my assessment of his psyche and his personality. He's not a deep thinker. Um, I don't think he's unintelligent. I think that he's quite intelligent. Um, but uh, even though he is in his own way, financially speaking, kind of part of a, a wealthy elite, he desires a comparison with his base voters, base of voters, that makes him more like an average guy that you'd have a beer with at the bowling alley or something like that. You know, when your teams are bowling on Tuesday night, he wants people to see him that way. And so he speaks in this kind of uh, New York tough guy talk that almost sometimes sounds like a mobster, <laughs> you know, in a bad mafia movie, you know, tough guy talk, uh, ordinary language that can resonate with your average person. Um, but, you know, the thing is, he's doing this in ways that touch uh, on, on global issues that have real consequences. And, and uh, I, I think the frustration with him uh, about this is, uh, I'm sure he doesn't write his own speeches, but sometimes he ad-libs the speeches that are, are written for him um, because he has to feel comfortable in his word choice. And, uh, and that, that way helps him do it. But, you know, he, he, this kind of blunt talk, that he does thinking and the failure, I think, to really deeply think about things and understand all sides of the issue. Um, it sort of it creates these situations where he misses opportunities to, to nuance things, to, uh, to make slight changes to positions that might appeal to broader audiences globally. And uh, also to show people that he is thinking about these things does mean what he's 
length of time he, you know, he doesn't mean any offense or harm. So, uh, you know, even today, if, you're, if we're talking about, for example, sounding a little more like Khrushchev, referring to the, the leader of North Korea in a tweet as Rocket Man is one thing. Doing it on a global stage in front of all the other countries of the United Nations, and again calling Kim Jong-il Rocket Man, um, sort of, here's a good example, it, it, it's another uh, demonstration that the Trump, Mr. Trump does not think about the consequences of this for the different audiences that he intends. And so, you know, in Asian culture generally, not all Asian cultures, but uh, certainly North Korea would be an example of this, there is such a thing as face, you know, and this notion of needing to save face. Uh, not to embarrass or to humiliate someone publicly is the point. And, it, and, it, and so doing things in a culture when you have one leader that has spent a lot of time building up uh, face, if you will, for his public, almost into a deity, almost like a god, where someone else just sort of uses rhetoric, in this case calling him a name, Rocket Man, which is intended to be sarcastic, um, doesn't... It's what I meant when I said before, it's escalating tensions, and it's not inviting that leader to sit down and negotiate a peaceful resolution to this with you. If anything, it's entrenching that person in his unwillingness to help you uh, with this because you've embarrassed him in a culture that that uh, finds it shameful to be humiliated publicly. And, you know, that is blunt, but it is kind of ham-fisted and, frankly, uh, foolish and, and, and in all those ways. And, you know, Khrushchev lived to regret his words eventually, and uh, I fear that our presidents may as well. You have to, if you're going to be on a global stage and be the leader of the free world, yeah, you can think about America first, but you have to still consider all the other audiences that we have to live with, and he clearly is not doing that right now. Well, staying, staying with um, Khrushchev, at least tangentially, I mean, um, my words, not yours, but what I heard today, maybe not the not in the same context, but certainly the tone uh, was reminiscent uh, of the, in the height of the Cold War, sort of an us versus them. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and not just us versus them or us versus you, but also this sort of um, sense of menace about this, that we, you know, we have all this strength and you're going to have to come our way. We're not going to come your way. You're going to have to bend to our will, not the other way around. And uh, and we won't be, you know, uh, well, it's why I think probably most American voters like hearing him say we're not going to be bullied by anybody else, but um, the rest of the world doesn't like the implication that it's okay for us to be bullies to them. And uh, again, these are these, that's what I meant by nuancing. There are ways to make people still feel that you're allies. Uh, and he just, he, you know, this is a bad metaphor, but he is, he is literally the bull in the china shop. He, he, I think he thinks it's, it's more impressive on a global stage to, to crash all of the china and the china shop than it is. I don't mean China, China, but China like flights, as the metaphor goes, and to look like this big, strong thing um, than it is to show some restraint and some wisdom and some patience and... Uh, that you'll put the time into diplomacy to resolve conflicts, which is vastly, I think, preferable to engaging in violence and war. Well, well given the tone of uh, today's speech, and I would also probably add um, some of the uh, remarks made by UN Ambassador Nikki Haley recently 
are we painting our, are, do you worry that we're painting ourselves in a corner where war becomes not only the first option but relative, uh, relatively speaking the only option well I I I, th- I I don't know if all the paint is on the floor yet and we're in that corner but we are clearly uh, going in that direction let's put it that way um, it's it's I think extremely uh, concerning when uh, well I'm gonna give you an example I I wrote something on Facebook this weekend that, you know, I write posts all the time. This one got close to 6,000 comments. And it was something small about uh, the president, video of him hitting a golf ball. Uh, that it's, it's Mrs. Clinton in the back. Maybe you saw that. Yeah, I saw, I saw and, your post, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I was shocked. And, and in particular, all the written responses. And about... Not half, but maybe let's say 40% of those were people who supported Mr. Trump. I was surprised in some of those comments to read when uh, when people were talking about why it was important for Trump to uh, be president and who cares about him retweeting this. Uh, when they talked about North Korea, I was surprised to see some of his supporters uh, talk about nuclear war as if that's uh, an option. And... This is not a, a good thing to, to consider an option. You know, it, it should be the last case the scenario and the, the, the sort of scenario you want to avoid. The fact that it's even something that people would sort of openly discuss in social media as if it's nothing suggests to me how far we are removed from a, a reasonable fear of not just the destructive force of a hydrogen bomb or an, a, a, a smaller atomic device, but also the very real you know, long, uh, longevity impact of uh, radiation fallout, uh, the poisoning, if you like, of the earth or the waters or whatever, or places where you would grow crops, uh, the killing of a huge number of people. And we're, we're talking about, as I said before, you know, in North Korea, uh, impact that would spill over into South Korea, which would affect American troops that are there, impact to Guam, impact to Japan. Um, and probably put us in a difficult position with other countries that were also impacted by this, and I mean by that Russia and China. There's nothing that's good about this, and it, it should be a scenario you want to avoid, not uh, paint yourself towards. Now, certainly, Kim Jong-il has encouraged some of this by his behavior, a lot of this by his behavior. But, you know, I don't mean to talk too much about this, Brian, so cut me off if I'm taking too long. No, but you're doing fine, Joe. Go ahead. An, an alternative threat, if you like, or not alternative threat, but an alternative school of thought about North Korea um, suggests that the whole purpose for building up this in the, in the with the speed that Kim Jong-il has done is because he does intend to negotiate eventually to remove these sanctions and, and uh, improve, you know, the situation for his country. Um, talking with political commentator um, uh, Joe Tuman. And Joe, just continuing that thread, though, while, while all this is going on, you sort of mentioned them, but, but what do you think China's response or, or what might China's response be to th- these latest developments? I, I think they're very concerned uh, because anything that smacks of, of war in North Korea is, is very likely. China borders North Korea, China is the biggest trading partner. Um, is likely to bring uh, refugees and all the problems from that into China. And China, of course, is a very, very large country, but unlimited. And uh, I don't think they want that problem. And of course, if the United States took military action in North Korea and 
follow through on Trump's threat, uh, whatever was left of Korea in general after that uh, would be uh, assumedly under the, the supervision or the, under the responsibility of the United States at that point if that was our war. And I can promise you China would be very uncomfortable having uh, the U.S. military at their border. Um, uh, and, and again, if it's part of the logic for them of supporting a North Korea in the past has been to create that buffer with us. Uh, removing that buffer and altering how much of Korea we have influence in or control over um, would be definitely uh, threatening to China. I, so the answer to your question is uh, they, they couldn't have been happy to hear this today. Uh, they want de-escalation and uh, a peaceful resolution of this. You know, Trump is right when he says that they could do more to uh, help create that outcome. Um, but again, I think that our president has taken the wrong approach with this, if you want my personal opinion. That the, uh, for the same reasons I mentioned before about saving face, the right way to engage North Korea now diplomatically is not to do it through the news, it's not to do it publicly, it's to open backdoor communication, channels of communication. And the way to use or leverage the Chinese is to have them open those back doors so that if you're opening a back channel, if you like, to you're doing that quietly outside of news coverage. And you're having a plain and honest talk with no media consequences for that. And the Chinese could certainly help facilitate that. There's no question about that. Um, and if you, you know, but every time Trump says to China, you haven't done enough, you know, and, and then calls North Korea names, China's not motivated to help, and North Korea is not motivated to negotiate, if you follow my logic on this. Um, uh, so it's a missed opportunity. Well, let me, let me just stay with that then. I'm, this is not a—I'm not asking you to predict, but when um, in the public discourse when the president talks about um, the structure of North Korea, um, can there be a conflict with North Korea that does not include China? Is that also—are we, in effect, saying that— we're ready to go to war with China. Okay, so is it, I'm sorry. Can there be a conflict with no, no? North when, Korea? Yeah, when President Trump says that he's ready, you know, that, he, that we might annihilate annihilate North Korea. Yeah. Um, how does that talk not include China? So, in effect, if we are willing to go to war with North Korea, I mean, how how likely does that mean we're willing to go to war with China? Well, I. I I think that the administration would say that's not on the table. Um, but to answer your question in an indirect way, certainly if China in any way entered into that conflict in defense of North Korea, if we were at war with North Korea, then uh, it would include them. We yep. have to remember uh, in China we're dealing with a much larger military force um, a more advanced technology for missiles and the like, uh, the largest air force in the world. Um, maybe not all the you know the, the super technology we have today, although they've been, they've made some investments. That is not a conflict we want to get into. And so, uh, I, I would think unless China chose to enter that conflict, um, it, 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 the, this conflict with North Korea would. would Now, the question is, to answer your question, uh, would North Korea want to have China involved, and would China want to get involved? And I, you know, I guess maybe the president's thinking on this, or perhaps the 
forgive the expression, brain trust that he has around him, um, is if we threaten war, that might be the thing that precipitates finally you know, moving China uh, off their position and more actively involved in diplomatically coercing North Korea to give up its program, its, its nuclear program. I think that's maybe part of the reason the president is doing this. Um, and, uh, well, we'll see if that works. As I said, I think I continue to, to take the position, however, that this rhetoric, like what you saw in his speech today, escalates tension. It embarrasses the leader of North Korea culturally uh, at his own place. It entrenches him in his position. Um, and it's not the sort of thing that's going to encourage the Chinese to uh, want to play, especially when the president is insulting them, too. You know, the, the audience applause, Joe, seemed, um, at least on television, muted. And, I'm, and yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, in your view, does that reflect the not only the opinion of U.N. members and, 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 as well as the countries represented? Well, I, 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 I think it does. I think it, it, it uh, you know, a lot of these other countries also have relationships with us. Um, and... We're now witnessing a president who keeps score and uh, is quite happy to punish people that he feels are disloyal. Loyalty is a big thing with him, too, by the way. And uh, so the, the muted uh, applause, you know, but still polite applause that they're doing it sort of as a courtesy. Uh, I think the analogy is kind of like when the president of the United States gives the State of the Union address, and, and let's say it's a Democrat, and you know, two, or half, more than half of the people in Congress are Republicans, you'll note that sometimes they'll clap, but they don't stand up, or they'll, it's just sort of polite applause, and, and that's their way of saying, we respect the institution of the presidency, but we don't like you in particular, Mr. President, so we're not going to stand up and act like we really care. <laughs> and that's kind of what you saw today. Um, a lot of these people have a relationship with the United States that is military and financial it's based on uh, trade agreements and things like that and, and then mutual defense pacts. Um, we influence the outcome of, of a lot of countries. And so they can't really afford to be seen publicly in a way that will be replayed in the news and social media as showing their disdain or disgust with the United States or Mr. Trump. Um, at the same time, it's important for them to let him know that they're not enthusiastic about what they've heard. So what you saw today was their way of communicating that in a way that still preserves the relationship with the United States, but in a non-verbal way, if you like, kind of communicates what they thought they said. You know, following that, you, know, you, you mentioned earlier, and I, I wanted to bring it up, that the president in his remarks also stated that um, he left a little doubt that he planned to scrap the, the uh, Iran uh, nuclear deal. You, you touched on it. But um, speak more, if you would, on just w some of the ramifications of um, scrapping that deal. Well, the, you know, honestly, he would be in a stronger position to make this argument, in my judgment, if uh, the latest rounds of inspections came back and said, oh, my goodness, there is plenty of evidence that uh, they've restarted their program and they're in violation of the, of the agreement. At that point, you'd either put on new sanctions or you'd say the agreement is done and now there's going to be even worse sanctions and we you know, squeeze them or whatever. Um, but instead, uh, partially out of a desire to look strong to his face, and I think he's also this is also partially uh, his attempt to woo um, Jewish American voters in this country. Uh, not all Jewish Americans are sympathetic to Israel, but for those who are, 
uh, you know, pro-Israel, Israel first, that sort of thing in their thinking. They want an American foreign policy that's very deferential or at least uh, sympathetic to Israel. Um, he's taken this position that uh, uh, this agreement is worth nothing, even though Iran is complying with it. But he wants this position because as other Iran has been a destabilizing force, um, uh, you know, in, in these other countries. And, and I think I, I work with NATO, so I don't think this, this data is wrong on this. Iran has been uh, involved in uh, the instability in Syria. Uh, it has interests in other parts uh, of, the, of the Middle East as well um, and in Iraq as well. And uh, it has quietly supplied uh, weapons, sent troops, sent uh, technical advisors. Um, uh, and that has, you know, they're looking, that's part of the reason they're, they're concerned about what happens now that uh, ISIS has collapsed in Iraq and is gradually giving away the territory it controls in, in uh, Syria. Um, there's concern that there will be this path that goes around Turkey, if you will, from Iran, um, that can be a pipeline for troops, for money, for trucks, if you like, for resources to, to move to other groups like Hezbollah or, or others, or maybe all the way to the North African continent, where there are other groups that have alliances with ISIS that maybe will be looking for a new partnership with a larger country like Iran. So the president is understandably concerned about that, but has decided to make that part of Iran's, our issue with Iran, um, a, a condition, if you like, uh, that was never negotiated of this nuclear deal. And, and the reason he wants, and that's really the reason he wants to tear this up, is he wants this other behavior to stop. But the fact is, the nuclear thing is, is frankly, a bigger threat, if you like, uh, to a country like Israel or to any of the countries there um, than the question of, of supplying money and arms to uh, these, these uh, terror groups. And it's kind of pick your poison, but, you know, again, if we're, if we're scaling the potential for damage, I think you would say that a nuclear weapon can, it can do much more damage uh, than uh, these individual groups. And so um, that's the reason the president is doing this. And, and uh, again, understandable, but uh, problematic if you tear this up, because it's, it's just going to encourage Iran to go back and, and continue the development of the nuclear program. It will be another example uh, of, of uh, sort of new proliferation uh, along the blueprint of North Korea. Well, I mean, taking the sum total of, of, this, of this discussion so far, I'm talking with political commentator Joe Tuman. You know, you, 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 we've talked about uh, the potential of um, uh, the nuclear tension, at least, with North Korea. Yeah. Um, now, we've talked about Iran and um, maybe further destabilizing that region where we're, al where we're already in a theater of war. We're in a theater of war in Afghanistan. Yeah. How much, what's realistic? I mean, at some point, um, uh, 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 William Cullen Bryant said things fall apart, the center cannot hold. You know, what part can, you know, at, at what point, Joe, do we're unable to hold all these things we're trying to hold in tension? Well, and that's the reason for, uh, that's the reason, by the way, that it's very important uh, to, to continue to maintain in a collegial and diplomatic and civil tone uh, our relationship with the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, uh, the, the organization, rather, um, and uh, to sort of share the burden, if you like. Now, NATO has had also a much larger 
um, uh, troop position, a uh, troop uh, deployment in uh, Afghanistan historically uh, in the last several years, and uh, have shared some of that burden. Less so, though, in places like Iraq and in Syria. Uh, and ideally, what we want is uh, cooperation and a sharing of those, so that's not all on us. Um, and also, we want their, you know, for the countries that they represent, their assistance in diplomatic solutions to the conflict there, uh, as well helping to create environments in places like those uh, so that you don't have failed states, which means governments that can't deliver basic services for their people. Uh, because in those environments, that's where terror groups like uh, ISIS or Al-Qaeda uh, or whatever, you know, you, you name the group, thrive. And uh, so the answer to your question is, no, we can't be everywhere at once and, and be effective. Um, we can win individual skirmishes. But the long-term solution in places like this, which is, is to help build uh, states that are stable, um, and hopefully also states that respect uh, democratic institutions. You know, they don't have to be exactly like us, but, but you know, sort of respect the things that most countries believe are the correct way to behave um, are the kinds of governments we want to support. And, uh, you know, if we're going to be a global leader, and we have been for a long time, that is the, the framework. That's, that's the sort of thing that we want to promote, even if we're not doing it you know, just by the, throw, the threat of force. I don't mean to be facetious, Joe, but you know, part of it when I, when, when um, hearing the president talk about North Korea, he um, criticized former President Obama uh, for the Iran deal. Then he then he uh, regurgitated Venezuela and Cuba. You know, remember, remember Annie, get your gun. Remember the musical. I, oh yeah, I, I felt I felt like uh, President Trump was saying to President Obama, "Anything you can do, I can do better." That, that that's sort of how, <laughs> that's what I was hearing when I heard that speech today. You know, it, it, the funny thing about Trump, and I, I won't say it's an endearing thing, but, but you almost, at some level, if you forget your politics and just sort of see him as, as a human being who has, we all have flaws, and he has his, um, he's a very public person, um, and he has not been especially discreet about what he thinks about things, and and. He wears his frustrations or his feelings or his anxieties or whatever it is on his sleeve, and it's it's there uh, as much uh, something for the public to look at as that conversation his lawyers were having that that New York Times reporter overheard the other day, and uh, and so you know one of the things we know about Trump is uh, I think at some level there is some insecurity for a guy that most people I know. Who, who have to brag about themselves are doing that, the psychologists will tell you, because they're compensating for uh, perhaps some internal insecurity or uh, feelings of insecurity, inadequacy. And so they compensate for that by saying exactly the opposite. This president oftentimes comes across that way. Um, he continues to berate, for example, Hillary Clinton, even though he won the election. I mean, she's, she's done. She can't run. She's not going to run a third time. She'll never be president. He's the president. But he's still behaving as if she's some kind of viable threat. And that's not rational, unless you look at this from the perspective of thinking of Trump as someone um, who himself is not uh, confident in his own position, you know, not sure that he, he really is the president, and, and the fact is he is. And you see that same kind of 
stance or posture when he talks about other countries as he did today or just in the way he behaves generally. I think there is a lot of insecurity on the side, uncertainty, if you like, on the inside. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the Russia investigation and Bob Mueller will eventually bring us to, but I, if I were betting, I would still say that this president will be president for the next couple of years. And if he is going to be, he needs to get past this insecurity and just be the president and do your job, that sort of thing, do his job. And... Uh, you know, not get sidetracked by all these other things. And, and it's nice that he's so open about how he feels about things and what he's thinking. But, you know, when you're president, you show some discretion once in a while, for heaven's sakes. Well, since you mentioned Russia, and just in the few minutes we have left, uh, we've also learned, I mean, a, a lot has been going on, but we also learned that the U.S. investigators had indeed uh, wiretapped uh, former campaign chairman Paul Manafort yeah. uh, under a secret court order and after the election. And so my question for you is twofold. First, what are the possible ramifications, if you want, wish to surmise, and does any of this legitimize uh, Trump's claims that President Obama had indeed wiretapped his phones uh, in New York? Um, well, Manafort did have an office in Trump Towers, and uh, so it would legitimize it to that extent. Um, but there are two things to remember. The first is, uh, this was the FISA court, I believe, that, uh, that issued this. And the burden of proof uh, and the standard for the evidence that Mueller would have to demonstrate, um, or, 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 pardon me, this is before Mueller, that the president's uh, attorneys would have to demonstrate in order to justify, I guess this would have been maybe under Jim Comey um, as well as the FBI director, to get... Uh, a warrant to wiretap, especially if you think about it, you know, the, someone before the election and then after the election as well. Um, that, that, that evidence, I mean, they don't just give those warrants away. Uh, you have to, to demonstrate, uh, meet a very high standard of evidence to show um, that there is uh, evidence of criminal activity, uh, just like when they searched uh, uh, Manafort's house uh, earlier and, you know, they busted in on him basically, and served a warrant and searched. I mean, they not only had evidence, or they, they must have produced evidence of, of uh, you know, the possibility of criminality, but also the suggestion that if they didn't search, uh, that Manafort would destroy evidence. I mean, that's, that's, that's what was going on. So um, I'm, I'm, I, I, I think the president will say, see, Obama was playing politics, but it wasn't Obama in this instance who, who legitimized that warrant. It was a judge. That is, who is apolitical in this process and has enormous standards that you have to meet in order to grant something like that because these are extraordinary uh, situations. And I, I guess the other thing I would say uh, in this is, uh, you know, if, if there is evidence of, of criminality, whether it's through uh, money laundering, which is likely, um, or, or Manafort himself being some sort of connection back to Kremlin officials who wanted to participate in whatever way in this election. And now that we see all this stuff about Facebook, for example, uh, and the propagation of more false stories, some of which, by the way, I saw in the responses to my post <laughs> over the weekend, people still saying Hillary Clinton uh, you know, gave uranium to the Russians or something like that nonsense. Um, when you see that, uh, uh, I think there's reason for a court to be involved. I, you know, the, the question in the end with all of this will be how close that gets to the president. I, I, I do think Mr. Manafort will be indicted, um, just like uh, Michael Flynn will. 
Um, I think people like Roger Stone and other advisors, informal advisors, um, are all looking at uh, the possibility of that. But whether this gets to Trump or not remains to be seen. And that's why I said before he may very well continue to be president, but you know some of these people may go to jail or at least be threatened with the possibility. Well, Joe, we didn't have you on uh, in the summer. But we had you on in the spring. We may have to we may have to shorten um, these invitations because too much happens in the between yeah. the times we talk. But Joe Tuman, thank you so much for once again being on the public rally, sir. We much appreciated your voice and your knowledge. Byron, always a pleasure, and and I wish you and your uh, your listeners uh, a wonderful fall. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was political commentator Joe Tuman. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. President John F. Kennedy stated in 1962, The great enemy of truth is it very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Too often we hold fast the cliches of our forebearers. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. One would think the aforementioned JFK quote was written yesterday and not 55 years ago. It is an accurate distillation of what I view is the most subversive challenge within the 21st century public discourse and subsequently our core principles. It is much easier to locate the public person of our choosing and appoint them as our personal ventriloquists especially if they are sustaining our myth, than it is to accept the arduous challenge presented by our core principles. The proverbial soundbite designed largely to emotionally stimulate, followed by knee-jerk commentary, pacifies our curiosity, hardening our pre-existing thoughts. As a result, critical thinking becomes the sworn enemy of our beliefs which have been naively deemed to represent the sum total for what is true. What orthodoxy, be it social, political, religious, or economic, encompasses the totality of what is true? It has become sacrilege to disagree with the canon we philosophically align. Let us not fool ourselves. Philosophical alignment is the best we can attain. There will always be issues seductively presented by the human condition, that will challenge our prevailing suppositions. The myth, like war, is much easier to enter than it is to abolish. We recently witnessed the power myth can have on the public discourse with the controversy over Confederate monuments. The lost cause, which serves as a movement and myth, has effectively made any efforts to discuss the fate of the monuments sensibly to be a near impossible task. The narrative offers the South fought for states' rights and not for the defense of slavery. Moreover, it presents human bondage as a kinder, gentler institution that was far more benevolent than portrayed by the dominant culture. 
The Lost Cause takes a Camelot motif where Reconstruction was an additional burden placed on a defeated South as it laments the loss of Southern civilization. Reconstruction was onerous, exacerbating the harsh feelings that already existed between North and South. But a portion of the myth being true does not legitimize the entire narrative. It is bad history that has been promulgated vociferously and with frequency granting it legitimacy. Boyed by the myth, some states like North Carolina have enacted laws so that local municipalities are powerless to remove any monuments. Though philosophically I'm opposed to ad hoc decisions to remove the monuments, uh, the recent actions in Durham, North Carolina, to unceremoniously take down the statute of Robert E. Lee does reflect the unintended consequences when state officials cling to the myth. In a democratic society, the path pursued is more important than the eventual outcome. But what should be expected when authoritarian legislation removes the democratic option from the people? But the monuments are low-hanging fruit. The effectiveness of the lost cause is reflected in its ability to influence certain textbooks in the South, sustaining the myth for future generations. But clinging fervently to the greasy rope of our orthodoxy, we become advocates for sustaining the myth, rather as Kennedy offered, engaging in the discomfort of thought. Are we so arrogant to believe there is no virtue in the side we philosophically oppose? What do liberals have to offer the conservative critique? Shouldn't the believer hear the virtues put forth by the non-believer? Though counter to contemporary discourse, without the contrarian perspective, we would be lost in the vainglory of our beliefs. Without the thought of those we oppose, we risk becoming callous to the possibility that only our thinking is normative holding to the myth that we've created as the unvarnished truth. That does not lead to that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me directly at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh -huh.